Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It can sometimes be hard to determine whether the tides are beginning to turn. And so it was this week from Washington to Ukraine. The Department of Justice, under increasing pressure from the public and members of Congress to investigate possible criminal conduct by Donald Trump and his allies, apparently has begun to focus on the former president and his circle for their role in the January 6th violence. At the same time, a federal grand jury is issuing subpoenas to seek information about the phony electoral slates that Team Trump tried to engineer after the election in six states around the country. The January 6th committee referred two witnesses to the DOJ on contempt charges. Its mission of providing a full account of January 6th itself was made both harder and more exigent by the revelation that the White House failed to keep phone logs for over seven critical hours on January 6th, a time when Trump was known to have been working the phones and fanning the flames. The war in Ukraine limped into its sixth week as the parties ostensibly engaged in preliminary peace negotiations, but U.S. officials and Putin scholars dismissed them as a ploy for the Russian president to try to regain a military upper hand. And the Biden administration introduced a new $5.8 trillion budget that included significant deficit reduction measures to win support of deficit hawks, while giving up on some, but not all, of Biden's previous progressive social proposals in exchange for a more moderate agenda. And to trace these title movements and their possible future paths, we welcome three fantastic guests. And they are Senator Michael Bennett. The senator has represented the state of Colorado since 2009 in the Senate. During that time, he's built a reputation as a pragmatic and independent thinker working with Republicans and Democrats to try to tackle Washington dysfunction. He is a member of the Senate Committees on Finance, Intelligence, and Agricultural Nutrition and Forestry. Before serving in the Senate, he was superintendent of Denver Public Schools, and before that, Counsel to the Deputy Attorney General, Jamie Gorelick, when he and I and our next guest all roamed the same hallway. This is his second visit to Talking Feds. Thanks so much for returning, Senator Bennett. Thank you, Harry, for having me. I really appreciate it. Amy Jeffress, a litigation and national security partner at Arnold & Porter. She co-chairs the firm's white-collar defense and investigations practice, representing clients in criminal defense, national security, and compliance matters. She advises the 1-6 committee assisting in their federal court litigation. Previously, she served as the Justice Department attache to the U.S. Embassy in London, as counselor to Attorney General Eric Holder, as assistant U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia, and many moons ago as counsel also to Deputy Attorney General Gorelick. Amy Jeffress, welcome back. Thanks for and, joining. And I should say she occupied the office right next door to me. Exactly. Well. Yeah, well, I've, I've said the same hallway, but we <laughs> yeah, we can draw the architecture right next door. That was great fun. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Harry. Always great to join you. Thank you. And someone who's never worked at the Department of Justice, but has made her reputation elsewhere. Carol Lennig, a national investigative reporter at The Washington Post, where she focuses on the White House and government. She is the author of 2021 Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, 
and the co-author of two books with Phil Rucker, including I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, which featured in a Talking Books episode. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for her work on security failures and misconduct inside the Secret Service and was part of a post team that was awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for revealing the U.S. government's broad surveillance of Americans. Lenning is also an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Carol, thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Feds. Delighted to join you. All right, let's begin with January 6th. It was a pretty big week for both the select committee and the DOJ's broadening investigation into the efforts to undo Biden's victory. Maybe the biggest development in the week was the opinion by a district court judge in California determining as part of a privilege dispute that the former president more likely than not committed federal crimes. You know, it had a sort of electric impact, but I wonder if anyone has thoughts about if it has any practical significance and moves the needle at all on the likelihood of criminal charges from the department. I'll take a swing at that. Obviously, the ruling by Judge Carter, you know, which Amy and Michael know with much greater um, detail than I do, has a different standard. You know, it's not a criminal prosecution. It's a finding based on the preponderance of the evidence that Donald Trump and his allies, close, close allies of his in the White House, more likely than not engaged in this illegal fraud, essentially, on the American people and an effort to block a important government proceeding. But that's different than what a lot of Americans, especially Democrats, are clamoring for, which is a criminal prosecution of the former president and his allies. That has to meet a much higher standard of proof in court. And, you know, to quote The Wire, if you come for the king, you best not miss. There's also an extremely high standard for going after a former president. And the Department of Justice certainly is going to have their ducks in a row before they even consider such a charge. Michael, Amy, and I, I called him Michael then anyway, we're all in the same hallway. Also on the hallway was one Merrick Garland. And, you know, we have a sense of the department, but I just did want to share our salad days recollections and what we think is maybe the mindset there. Obviously can't predict, but with the Carter opinion, the pressure was increasing, including from members of the committee and the ducks in a row that Carol refers to here. There's more of them and different ones, it seems to me, from any kind of normal prosecution. What's your kind of supposition, raw supposition? Uh, None of us has inside information on the kind of mindset and approach within the department to this momentous question. I think Amy's in a much better position to answer that. (laughs) We're not going to let you off the hook, but I will chime in to talk about this in a little more depth and maybe to use Carol's analogy, talk about the ducks. So in his decision, Judge Carter did not have to deal with all of those ducks. He only had to decide, not only was it a different standard, as you've both pointed out, he just decided that it was more likely than not that former President Trump had participated in criminal activity, but he also didn't have to consider all of the considerations that the Justice Department would have to take into account in deciding whether or not to bring a criminal case. And those are very serious. And one is that we're talking about the former president of the United States. 
and their OLC opinions that caution against applying criminal statutes to the president when the president's constitutional prerogatives are at issue. And you could argue whether that's the situation here, but it's certainly something that the Department of Justice has to take into account. And I do think that they have to be very cautious. I I would just add personally that I feel that there is so much pressure on the criminal justice system and that we often demand of the criminal justice system that it accomplish things that really should not be criminal justice matters. When you talk about the January 6th riots, there, of course, were violent crimes. There were, you know, assaults on police officers, and those are clearly criminal behavior that should be punished. But when you when you talk about the speech and, and really the big lie and the disinformation and uh, the really the lie perpetrated on the American public, a lot of that is probably protected speech. And I think we have to be very careful. There is some gray area in between with respect to obstructing the official proceeding that was going on in Congress. But I do think we have to be careful not to ask the criminal justice justice system to solve all of our problems. And the January 6th committee, I think, understands that very well. They can refer crimes to the Department of Justice, but they are looking at doing a report and holding people accountable in a public way that is, uh, I think, equally or maybe even in the long run more important than what the criminal justice process will achieve. And I I would just say on Amy's last point, Harry, having been there on January 6th and experienced the the violence of that day and the racism of that day, that it really is important for there to be a public accounting of this so that the American people will never forget what happened on that day. It was unimaginable to me. I was standing in the Hart building after we had been taken off the floor, watching what everybody else was watching, which was a television set that had the Capitol being invaded while we were in the building next door. And That was a site that was not uncommon when we were kids, but it took place in other countries. It was unimaginable that it could happen here in the United States, and it did happen in the United States. And we all know that that this is when republics fail, is when you can't make a a decision in in an election and political violence takes over. And that's why I think it's such an important moment for us not to just skip over, and we need to make sure we understand it. I get asked all the time about what I think Merrick Garland's doing, you know, with these cases. And my answer based on the work that we did with him is that he will approach this with complete integrity and he will make a judgment based on his legal analysis of the facts that, you know, he's got in front of him and he'll be immune to political pressure, however that leads him. And I think in the end, from the point of view of the restoration of our judicial system and the rule of law, I think that's a good place for us to end up. So whatever credibility any of the three of us have acquired with anyone listening, I think you will hear resounding here, hears from us. That really is pretty certain having worked for um, or with Garland. I really want to second what both Amy and the senator say, that accountability is huge. It's an imperative of the democracy that we actually have a full accounting and an outrage that we don't to date. And in that sense, the committee's work really matters. I want to stay with this just for one second, though. You hear sort of two different ways of thinking about it. Without fear or favor means you are fairly impervious to the notion that it's the former president or his allies that are potentially in the dock. Or otherwise, you maybe hearken back to, say, Nixon and the kinds of considerations that Ford and others brought to bear for just the good of the country, which factor in uniquely in this kind of consideration. 
if you were in Merrick Garland's maybe unenviable chair here, how to think about the whole extra set of considerations that go beyond the U.S. Attorney Manual for Principles of Prosecution? Well, as I was saying, there are constitutional issues that are different with respect to a prosecution of the president, if we're talking about the president himself now. And so I think that the department has to be very, very careful. And I I know that Many people uh, and many commentators are saying that, you know, it would be wrong not to prosecute him and he has to be held accountable. But I would rather, and I think this is probably where Merrick Garland would come out, I would rather see the Department of Justice do too little rather than too much. I think it's more healthy for our democracy for there to be some restraint. And I think that that's his inclination by way of, you know, his approach to these things. And I also think it's probably the right thing in the long run for the country. I'm sure that there were many people who were, you know, obviously it was very controversial the time when Ford pardoned Nixon. Right. But when we look back at that, don't most of us think that that was actually the right move for him and the right outcome for the country? I think that is the judgment of history. Yeah. And not that, you know, President Trump should be pardoned, but I, I do think it's very, very dangerous uh, for us to clamor too hard for him to be prosecuted. Despite the horrors of January 6th, which Michael described very well, I, I think we have to be very cautious and we should be. I'm not a prosecutor, so I can't answer the question the way that you framed it, Harry. But what I hear from a lot of advocates for rule of law is that the former president faced no consequences for a host of things that rose to the level that would have put me in jail or would have put any of us on this screen in jail, um, at least indicted, (laughs) if not convicted. And so there's a lot of anxiety about, and I'll phrase it the way one particular activist mentioned it to me, we all saw a a fraudulent conspiracy in front of our face. We saw a criminal conspiracy. The indicia of it are not hard to see because I've done additional reporting about what Donald Trump was doing at the time and in the days coming up to January 6th, that conspiracy kind of grows in high relief the evidence of it. So I take your point, Amy, and I I completely understand about your Nixon-Ford comparison. But there is um, a question that looms, which is, are our institutions, our federal institutions, our law enforcement, our sacred law enforcement entities, are they capable of protecting our democracy? Because this is and was an attack on it, and it continues to be as fomented by the former president. Carol, I think it's up to you, though. It's up to the press to hold the president accountable. It's up to our education system. I think there's lots of uh, segments of society that need to be more robust in holding people accountable for this behavior. And we shouldn't just rely on the criminal justice system. I guess I would also add, I'm certainly glad I'm not making this particular decision. Yeah. But I do think that the corruption that Donald Trump represented of which knew no bounds. I mean, you can't open the paper without finding one more thing, like where are the seven hours of phone records? And of course, I mean, is anybody surprised? Nobody's surprised. I know what's going to be weighing on their minds partly is going to be to make sure that whatever decision they make, our judicial institutions are strengthened and not weakened as a result, and that Donald Trump is not able to to make a claim that somehow the what the Justice Department is doing is itself corrupt. Because then you're in the place where so many countries around the world are in, which is 
the best way to not get arrested is to become president of whatever country you're in. Yeah. No, and the easiest way to get arrested is to stop being president of whatever country you're in. That's real stuff that we got to make sure we, we don't import here to the United States. And that's I'm, I'm passing no judgment on whether he should be indicted or not indicted. I just want our institutions at the end of this nightmare of his endemic corruption to be stronger, not weaker. Harkening back to your point about watching Banana Republics as a kid, that is what you think of former presidents being, you know, hanged high. Does feel like one way of summarizing the impact of the Trump years is it kind of took us a quarter turn toward fill in the blank, uh, say, you know, Hungary or Brazil or whatever. And and how do we stay far away? One one quick PS in the developments of the week. So it had seemed as if, and that it was part of the impatience of members of the committee in particular, that the department had not cracked a file or opened anything on it. They had been only on the kind of actual ragtag insurrectionists, but now there does seem to be an investigation that includes and encompasses legislative officials, members of the executive branch and the like. So that's an important development. Of course, it won't possibly coincide with the timing that so many people are eager to see, which is essentially coincident with the political calendar and you know some big move by the midterms. So let's switch over to the House and the select committee. Very active week. They started with voting out contempt charges for Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro. Actually, Amy, let me start with you. You know, when they went that way with Bannon, it seemed like they were giving up on getting information from him. Is that the case that they're referring Scavino for contempt, meaning they're kind of giving up on actually having his information as part of the report? And I just note that he is really in a singular position. He, as best we can tell, he is the guy, I'm thinking of the gap that the senator just mentioned, who's at his side all during January uh, 6th. Do we think now that the committee won't really be able to harvest any of his knowledge? Well, let me just say we're assisting the committee with respect to the challenges that are being brought against their subpoenas. But on on these issues, I don't have any inside information. I I would just say that with respect to Steve Bannon, the contempt referral was a much easier decision for the Department of Justice than some of the others because Steve Bannon did almost nothing to comply and didn't didn't even really make any effort. It's almost as if he wanted to be prosecuted uh, because he, as I understand it, he didn't he didn't appear. He didn't turn over documents. He didn't attempt to cooperate with the committee in any way. And so when you're faced with that, really just, you know, complete stonewalling, I think that contempt was the only option. Whereas Mark Meadows engaged a lawyer who engaged in a very lengthy back and forth with the committee. He turned over quite a few documents. We saw them in the publicity about the text with Jimmy Thomas, Thomas, right? So not only did he turn over documents, but he turned over substantive, very informative and interesting and new information. So he did cooperate in a significant way. He did not appear, but there was a back and forth about a potential appearance. And so I think it's a harder decision. And and maybe the department will decide that it's the last resort to try to get him to appear. But I think that there's a lot more in his favor 
partly because of his cooperation and, and some good lawyering um, on behalf of his lawyer, but it's a it's a much harder contempt case. And then I don't know the facts as well about uh, Scavino and Navarro, and those, of course, have just been referred, as you noted, but I think that they are probably somewhere in between those polls. Carol, I just want to ask, are you hearing anything about the three-month-plus delay in the Meadows decision? Nothing that I think will really answer your central question. I, you know, I hear whispers and rumors and those we don't put in the Washington Post. Um, but some of what I've heard is a lot of pause about the privilege Meadows held um, yeah. because it's the strongest for the national security advisor and it's second strongest for the chief of staff and the White House counsel, at least in practice it has been. And so that's pretty tricky. You, if you can't have the private advice of your chief of staff, um, that is a problem. But I also think it's a huge problem not to hear what Meadows was saying to the president and doing in the days leading up to January 6th, because as we've reported multiple times, he's the linchpin between the president and others who were planning um, a march on the Capitol without a legal permit. The folks who had the most connection and traction and communication with the individuals who've now been charged with sedition. So you're not too many far hops from Mark Meadows with regard to January 6th. Yeah. I mean, I think he and Scavino, their information is very hard to to replicate. So that's a, a real sacrifice from the committee, but I don't think they were left with much choice. You know, we'd been hearing that the public hearings by the committee were going to start around now. And we had in mind a possibly dramatic procession of witnesses time-wise. Do we have a sense of when this will happen and what they'll look like? From my reporting, it's that it will be in the spring (laughs) before June. um, And that the goal is to, you know, really do something that Robert Mueller didn't do as well, or rather wasn't allowed to do as well, which is to present first-person witnesses and testimony that narrate this story for people. To Michael's point, people need to know what really happened, um, and hearing it from even non-bold-faced names individuals is going to be really the ace in the hands of the January 6th committee. Having those individuals, some of whom I've interviewed, describe you know, what they saw at the shoulder of the president, what they saw at the shoulder of Mark Meadows, what they learned while riding around in cars with the protest slash march organizers. That narration is important, as as will be the recommendations for preventing this from happening again. Yeah, I mean, nothing like first person testimony, right? We didn't even get it in the impeachments. He harkened back to Watergate. I know a number of the staff and and obviously some of the members, too, who are on this committee, and they're very talented and very committed to getting this story out. And the Mueller team was supremely talented as well, but that was a purely criminal investigation, we should remember. And this is not. This is a congressional investigation. And as we were discussing before, the goal is not just criminal prosecutions, but more so, much more so, accountability. And they know that that's what they have to achieve. And I I have high expectations for what they're going to do. Um, and I think they're aware of the timeline and the importance of the work that they're doing. And I, I think we're going to start seeing it in a few weeks. They really are pros, it seems to me. I can't uh, remember a more thorough, energetic, disciplined um, congressional investigation. All right. So I think there's an end for now. And uh, it would be ambitious. But as you say, I think they are as aware of the timeline as we are. 
let's go cross the the globe to the what I've been uh, insisting on calling the war of Russian aggression. But the so the war in Ukraine has entered its sixth week. And for the first time, there seemed maybe some baby steps toward peace. Ukraine offers a detailed proposal that, you know, seems to give up on being in NATO. And Moscow supposedly responded with a decision to cut back military activity, especially in Kiev and, and Chernihiv. I thought it was striking that the U.S. right away through through Tony Blinken basically didn't buy it. And the secretary general basically uh, said, you know, Russia's just posing here. So is it in fact bogus? Russia's saying we're we're going to ease up. And is the end of the war no less remote than it was uh, a week ago? I certainly uh I wouldn't take anything that Putin's saying at face value at, at all. I think the likeliest thing that's happening is that he's still trying to win. He's still trying to destroy Ukraine. And I think that that should be our assumption. It's possible that uh, he is regrouping and it's possible he's moving troops from one part of the country to another to help secure uh, what he's doing in the Donbass. But maybe not. I think it's more likely to believe that he thinks he can still win and that he's going to do everything he can to win. And win means plant a Russian flag in Kiev. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important for us to do absolutely everything we can do to support the Ukrainian people who have just been staggering in their bravery and their courage and in their ingenuity. It's unbelievable what they have inspired in the rest of the world. And we've got to do that at the same time that we don't inadvertently tip ourselves into World War III. And we also, having said everything that I just said, you know, it's very important for people to remain in touch with Putin around the world, for leaders to be able to do that. If at some point there is some sort of diplomatic uh, way to address what's going on, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And I think that our job right now is to make sure that the Ukrainians have as much capacity as possible to turn this into a quagmire for Putin. So far, it seems that way. On this tipping point notion, so Biden made a speech with nine words or, or however many heard around the world, you know, the man can't remain in power and and everyone, including other world leaders, backpedaled. But he didn't exactly withdraw it. So I'm wondering, did, did you see it as sort of a blunder or a calculated ploy by Biden to say that at the end? And, and if, if calculated, calculated to what end? I think it was probably Joe Biden being Joe Biden, you know, and that 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 I think is what it was. You know, we're not in the business of regime change here in, in Russia. We shouldn't be in the business of regime change. At the same time, it's totally plausible to me that he was making an editorial comment, which is after this guy's done all this stuff, how can he possibly be the president or be the leader of of Russia? But I I will tell you this, though, Vladimir Putin, and I don't know Vladimir Putin, but I do know this about Vladimir Putin. I have absolutely no doubt that he thinks that's the plan. And whether the president said it or not, makes absolutely no difference at all from the perspective. Yeah, I mean, that did come to mind. I think it was Biden's internal voice saying, oh, Lord, you know, sitting down with the grandkids and saying, how can this guy still be running the country? You know, <laughs> okay. Maisie, what so do you So that's think? what you mean, Scranton Joe, as it were, <laughs> telling it straight. Exactly. Yeah. It, 
It's yeah. it's neither calculated <laughs> nor blunder. It's Joe Biden being Joe Biden in the way that, you know, America loves him for it. How can this man be in power? Isn't that what we're all thinking? And I think that the administration did the best it could to tamp down the foreign policy consequences successfully, I think. I, I think it was from the heart and that's the way I took it. I would disagree ever so slightly with something I think you said, Harry, which is that there is no consequence. I know the White House was losing their mind about that remark, not because they felt it made him look like a bumbler, but because they did not want to communicate anything more or less than their organized statement. And they didn't want to freak out other world leaders about what exactly we were trying to telegraph. And that seemed like a telegraph, right? But it it just wasn't. It's a good point. I mean, definitely the French, you know, Macron seemed that he was unnerved by it. I want to double back for a second to Putin. And there are reports this week that he is actually being misinformed about the progress, both in the field and of the bite of the sanctions, because he's surrounded by such yes men who are, you know, are scared to tell it to him. Uh, straight, that seems like a really dangerous spot for the leader of a wartime country to be in. Well, I think that's why he made this terrible decision to begin with, Harry. You know, I think it's because he sits on top of a totalitarian society. He's the totalitarian. And he made three massive mistakes here. One was he uh, completely misjudged the effectiveness of his own army and the effectiveness of 20 years of a buildup that he imagined, because I'm sure people told him this is going to be first in class stuff when it's not first in class stuff. You got him completely miscalculating the Ukrainian resistance. I'm on the intelligence committee. There's stuff that I I won't talk about, but I will say this. Our intelligence community knew that there was going to be massive resistance from the Ukrainian people, and they expected it would last for years and years and years. And Putin completely missed that. And the third thing was, I think he believed that there wasn't going to be this coalition that was going to come together the way it has with as robust a set of military and uh, humanitarian interventions and sanctions. I, I think he was probably thinking that uh, the reaction was going to look like it did the last time. You know? And it just, he wasn't right. So the, the fact that he's in the position that he's in right now, I think is a very, very dangerous position for the world. Because he could make a lot of miscalculations just because of how screwed up their form of government is and the kind of leader he is. And this is obviously of great concern to the administration as well, as they calibrate every single day, you know, how do we do everything we can to support the Ukrainians without tipping us, as I said, into World War III. And let's talk about what they are doing. And by the way, you know, on your last point, Senator, the the keeping the coalition together, got to give very high marks to Biden there. Maybe I could stay with you because you, along with Senator Portman, introduced a bill this week, the Relief for Ukraine Act. Can you give us the sort of quick account of what it is and why you're doing it? Sure. It's really, it's very simple. DOJ is setting up its ability to be able to seize the assets of the folks that have been sanctioned and the billionaires was, is the easiest way of thinking about that. And what Rob Portman and I are saying is that all of the proceeds of those actions, those seizures, should benefit the, the reconstruction of the Ukrainian 
country and the Ukrainian people. And it's a a reminder, unfortunately, of how long this is all actually going to take. But I hope we can pass it. I think we'll have broad bipartisan support for it. Mm -hmm. Let's do a closeout. You've mentioned now twice the anticipated length of this. So Biden promises another $500 million in aid this week to help the country maintain services. You know, no, no fly zone, no going over. So are we pretty well committed to these periodic aid packages from now to what you've described as possibly months or even more? It starts to get to be a pretty price tag. Yeah. Yeah. But look, I think we need to understand what happened here. This obviously was an attack first and foremost on Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, as I said, have inspired the, the rest of the world. I mean, my office, I'm certainly hearing from people all over Colorado who are saying you need to do everything you can do to support the Ukrainian people. That's not a result of great coalition building. That's not a result necessarily of great political leadership here. That's the result of people being inspired by what the Ukrainian people are doing. And I very much view what Putin has done as not just an attack on Ukraine, but an attack on democracy, you know, and and I believe he completely miscalculated the momentum at the back of totalitarianism and the, the momentum at the back of authoritarianism. I think the Chinese who are wrestling now with major issues around COVID are having to rethink some things along those lines as well. This is a moment for us, I think, to recommit to our own democracy and and democracies around the world. And one way to do that is by continuing to support Ukraine. Another way to do that is by making sure that our democracy is strong and that we come out of the near-death experience that we faced with Donald Trump's presidency, with his election, the fact that he got more votes the second time than he did the first time, what happened on January 6th, all of that recommitted to an era where we're going to make our democracy stronger and and in the end pass something off to our kids and our grandkids that we could re- be really proud of. That would be an exciting outcome for all of this. That's all very well said. To your point, Harry, about pretty price tag, you know, former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, who recently has published a book about her experiences and and was sort of savagely ripped from her job uh, as Donald Trump, then president, hoped to get dirt on Biden in the weeks before the election. She has argued for the no-fly zone for humanitarian purposes. And also on a budgetary purpose, others have said it's going to cost a lot less for America and Europe. The Marshall Plan, essentially, for Ukraine, that price tag is going to be a lot lower and a lot less painful if we are preventing mass evacuations of cities and the rumbling of all sorts of metal on different kinds of Ukrainian cities. It's going to be less costly in many, many ways for us to do something more than what we're doing now. I'm not an advocate for either position, but I I thought it was important to say what the former ambassador has advocated for. What Michael said about, you know, the people of Colorado caring about this and being inspired by the Ukrainian people, that is a global phenomenon, not just within the Colorado and the United States. But I was in London shortly after um, the invasion began. And in London, you feel it a lot more than you do in the United States because of their experience in World War One and World War Two, and just being that much closer to Ukraine. And people there are very tense, but 
united in support of the people of Ukraine. And I think for the United States to have that pervading our population, I think is terrific, but I think it's a global phenomenon. And I really did feel that, you know, the British public and throughout Europe, people are really united to support Ukraine and are going to pay those costs, Carol, that you just talked about to do that. As tragic as it is to see what's happening in these cities, it is very heartening to see the global support for the Ukrainian people and the support within the United States for them as well. That's remarkable. I mean, we're talking about 80 years, right? Because you're saying there's a sort of cultural resonance of this is their finest hour and bombs over London in 1941 that is actually animates the British spirit to support Ukraine. Is that right? Absolutely. That's still very real. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. So this week, we heard that a grand jury has convened to look into allegations involving phony slates of Trump electors in six states. So in today's sidebar, we're discussing what is a grand jury. And to explain, we are thrilled to welcome a great friend of the podcast, not to mention a great actress and great comedian, Jane Lynch, who is right now starring as Fanny Bryce in the revival of Funny Girl, the 1964 Barbara Streisand-led musical. It will have its official premiere April 24th, and it's right now in previews, a not-to-be-missed production, Funny Girl, coming to Broadway with Jane Lynch. And so I give you Jane Lynch on What is a Grand Jury? What is a Grand Jury? And how is it grander than a regular jury? A grand jury is a group of citizens, traditionally 23, that investigates crimes and brings indictments, which are bills of charges that begin prosecutions. Grand juries are impaneled and led by prosecutors who use the authority of the grand jury to subpoena documents and witnesses to investigate whether crimes have occurred. At the end of the investigation, a prosecutor will usually present a grand jury with an indictment. If the majority of the jurors vote to return a true bill, that means that the jury believes there is probable cause to believe that the individual committed the crime and should stand trial. The use of the grand jury dates back hundreds of years and was recognized in the Magna Carta in 1215. The framers of the Bill of Rights believe that grand juries served an important check on the powers of government by requiring a vote of ordinary citizens before a defendant could be formally accused of serious crimes. The Fifth Amendment includes this protection. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Grand juries typically sit for much longer than regular juries. Federal grand juries usually sit for 18 months, one day per week, and can be extended if needed. Grand juries are usually impaneled to investigate and, if needed, indict all serious crimes occurring during its tenure. But sometimes, if an investigation is particularly resource-intensive, prosecutors will convene a special grand jury that works on that matter only. A grand jury is called grand because with 23 jurors, it's bigger than a regular jury. Regular juries are also called petit juries, from the French word for small. So it is fair to say that a grand jury is usually 11 people grander than a regular jury. For Talking Feds, I'm Jane Lynch. Thank you so much, Jane Lynch, for that explanation. Again, Be There, Funny Girl Revival, starring Jane Lynch, premiering April 24th on Broadway. 
And as everyone knows, but just to mention, Jane Lynch is also a winner of five Primetime Emmy Awards, two Screen Actor Guild Award, and a Golden Globe, and is perhaps best known for her role as Sue Sylvester in the musical television series Glee. Can also be seen in Two and a Half Men and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as well as movies such as The 40-Year Virgin and Talladega Nights. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, Bordeaux and Napa face off, pitting the Bordeaux Reds against the California Cabs. From a numbers standpoint, the Bordeaux region is the clear winner with more wineries and higher production of bottles, producing nearly six and a half times more wine than Napa. But more doesn't necessarily mean better. Bordeaux wines are a blend of five different grapes. The Bordeaux region is actually divided by an estuary and two rivers forming the left bank and the right bank. Left bank wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon based, featuring more tannins and bigger overall structure. Right bank wines are predominantly Merlot based, richer in fruit, with a softer mouthfeel and less tannin and acidity. Now, much like the left bank, Napa wines are predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon and well-known for their rich, bold style. Many of these wines are also blends, but you can also find 100% varietal wines from Napa. So whether you're Team Bordeaux or Team Napa, your local Total Wine & More has a huge selection so you can enjoy the best of both worlds at a price that won't break the left or right bank. So find what you love and love what you find. Only a total wine and more. Cheers. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, let's head back to U.S. shores and spend just a few minutes discussing the White House's $5.8 trillion budget and how it attempts anyway to repackage aspects of the Build Back Better bill. So for starters, it is billed as bipartisan and centrist. That's the conventional wisdom. Accurate? I think we should start with the politician on the on the panel. <laughs> well, not just the politician, the pragmatic centrist. First, first of all, let me just say, you know, I think that that he actually has some accomplishments that matter to the people in my state and I think matter uh, to the country going into this budget. One is the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has been, I mean, I, I can't just can't tell you when you live in a place like Colorado, how important it is. This lack of investment for generations is now being addressed. We had the postal reform bill, which also was bipartisan, which matters a lot to rural areas in my state. You've got the appropriations bills that we just passed, which are not another of an endless continuing resolution, but actually has real priorities that reflect what lawmakers are trying to do. And now, before you get to the budget, the chance to pass this, I don't remember what it's called now, but the China Competes Bill, the Semiconductor, ORIN, and other legislation. These are all important accomplishments that when I was 
chairing the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee in 2014, and we were completely wiped out. We didn't have anything like that stuff. We haven't dwelled on it. We haven't discussed it. And I think in the context of that happening, the president's budget, I haven't looked at it in great detail, but directionally, it makes sense to me that he'd be making the changes that he's been making. I've always said that I don't think there's anything progressive about piling up mountains and mountains and mountains of debt on the American people because we're constraining the next generation's choices. And we have had, unfortunately, as a result of the Great Recession and as a result of COVID, we've had to put the country in not an ideal fiscal condition. So I at least appreciate the nod in this budget toward some notion of fiscal sustainability. And some things that are certainly going to attract the progressive interests. I was actually very buoyed to see the, the, the mental health care. It's massive. In Colorado, the effect of COVID, especially among young people, the, the mental health issues in rural parts of the state are just tremendous. In his State of the Union, where he got the first bipartisan standing ovation that I can remember in a long time in that chamber. The last thing he talked about was this unity agenda that's reflected in the budget, and mental health is a big piece of that, and it is at the very top of the list of people out here. All right, let's talk about the other side then. The conventional wisdom, I guess, also is that uh, Manchin, the emperor of, of West Virginia, needed more deficit reduction. So a pretty striking proposal here that's you know a 20% tax on all households worth more than $100 million. Can it keep all 50 Democrats on board? And I guess starting with Manchin himself. My Washington Post peers are so much more savvy on this topic than I am, the people who cover Congress and the White House, but um, they believe that it's possible, that it's conceivable. The senator's absolutely right about the general arc of this bill now. It's important to reflect how much Manchin has reshaped it, how much it has been tailored to him and to woo him. And then it also is important to note that it's about the midterms. I mean, this is a president who wants to pour a big old bucket of cold water on Republicans who try to stump in their states by saying, you know, as as former Donald Trump said, like two weeks into Joe Biden's term, Joe Biden is ruining America. He wants to pour cold water on the claim that this is a person running up debt for future generations pour cold water on the idea that he's soft on crime, that he's in league with the defund the policers, and just silence that kind of rhetoric that can, of course, be exaggerated and hyperbolic, but can be based on a kernel of truth. And so he's trying to take away the kernels, and that is accomplished in this budget in large measure. I just want to say one thing about will the revenue hold in this package? The president submitted a really serious revenue proposal in the reconciliation package. You know, for anybody concerned about the gnawing income inequality we have in this country, the lack of economic mobility, it's something people should have paid attention to. It's not that I agreed with every single thing there, but just to make an observation about my own caucus, we have yet to come to an agreement to reverse the Trump tax cuts on the wealthiest Americans, which is, in my opinion, a complete abdication of our responsibility to the American people, much less figured out how we're going to do a better job of 
making sure that we're dealing with this massive issue of the buildup of generational wealth among the wealthiest people in the country who have benefited mightily, among other things, from the Federal Reserve's intervention a couple of times over the last 10 years that's dramatically inflated asset values all over. So my point is, I hope we can do this, not just because it's good politics, but because after eight or $10 trillion of tax cuts for the wealthiest people in the country at a time of massive income inequality, it's nice to see a president who's actually trying to change those outcomes. And just quickly, so what is the hangup in your own caucus about undoing the Trump tax cuts? I think it's just easier to cut taxes than it is to raise taxes. And I understand that. But the American people have just complete contempt for our tax code because they know it benefits the wealthiest people in the country and special interests to their detriment. And yet, Senator, I would toss that back at you and I'd say, so Donald Trump convinced an enormous percentage of the American voting public that he was their savior and defender, even though so such a large percentage of them were exactly on the wrong side of this economic chasm. Yeah. And so what are Democrats doing here? Biden is on the defense for being accused of running up debt and not caring enough about crime and military. What are Democrats doing to communicate what Donald Trump did to the lesser of us? I think that we've been completely unclear about that and not coherent about that. Look, let me just give you a very clear, hopefully, I hope a coherent example. But if you were trying to win a Senate race in Wisconsin, maybe what you would want to do is reverse the Trump tax cuts, 52% of which went to the top 5% of Americans, something that Senator Johnson voted for. And at the same time you're reversing that, you might want to extend the enhanced child tax credit that I wrote with Sherrod Brown that goes to 90% of the kids in Wisconsin, and then be able to say, do we want a senator who's voting to cut taxes for the richest people in the country and then votes against a tax cut that goes to 90% of American children, votes against, on top of that, the infrastructure bill? Or do you want somebody who's voted the other way or would vote the other way? That's not Biden's fault. That's the Democratic caucuses in the Senate and the House that haven't created that level of clarity. And we need to. And we really need to. I'll tell you this, if you look at the distribution tables, what the Trump people cynically did was give middle class people a little shred, a little tip where they could say, look, there's your tax cut. When he went out to Youngstown and said, that's your tax cut, ignoring the fact that the massive amount of that money actually went to the richest people in the country, which is what basically we've been doing since 2001. I mean, that's $10 trillion worth of tax cuts for really wealthy people. We just have a minute or two for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. All right, so the question is, would you charge Will Smith with battery? Everyone's calling it assault, but it is in fact battery, not assault. That's for the the lawyers here. Would you charge Will Smith with battery? Can I start with the former prosecutor here? Sure. The victim might say no. (laughs) Way to go with the five words, Amy. You really prepared. (laughs) Not my specialty. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think we should just follow Amy's lead in all all of these matters. <laughs> I'll say too big and too small. All right, we are sadly out of time. Thank you very much to Amy Jeffress, Carol Lennig, and Senator Michael Bennett. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we'll be posting full episodes, interviews with authors on our Talking Book series, and bonus video content. A reminder that we're also available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, like the discussion I had with criminologist Richard Rosenfeld that we posted just a couple days ago about the alarming spike in murder statistics starting in 2020. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, assistant producer Matt McArdle, sound engineering by Adam Macias. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Talking Fed's favorite, Jane Lynch, soon to debut in the revival of Funny Girl on Broadway for explaining the grand jury in our sidebar segment. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>